We pick it up this evening in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. So would you grab that in your Bibles? Joshua, if you're new to the Bible, the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then it's the following. It's number six, book number six, right after the book of Deuteronomy, right before the book of Judges. (coughs) Excuse me. We pick it up now in verse 30, if you'd read along with me. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them, Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ival, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Moses did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Pray with me, if you would, please. Lord, I recognize that we are reading text that took place over 3,000 years ago. Over 3,000 miles ago. And yet, Lord, we recognize today that you've chosen in your divine wisdom to preserve this text, that we could be instructed that we could get to know you, that we could understand you better. That we tonight could encounter you, a God who never changes, never sleeps nor slumbers. A God that is absolutely in love with us and created us for fellowship with you. So tonight, speak to us, God, I pray. Let us get it. Let us truly understand So open the eyes of our hearts, God, our ears. Open, Lord, our very beings that we tonight would receive your word and allow you to change everything you want to change within us. We commit ourselves to you now and thank you for the blessing of another night sitting at your feet. Lord, for every one of us, no matter where we came in, meet us there and draw us into a deeper more meaningful relationship with you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as it would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. The Bible's in front of you to check all things. The Bible will always be the authority and the more smarter, powerful a man seems to speak, all the more careful you should be to search out Scripture. So, okay, so in in a rough nutshell, what we get is this, right? We get that uh, Joshua, this character, builds an altar 
And then he has a bunch of people stand between two mountains. And he has the ark sitting in between them. And then they all pronounce blessings and cursings. And everybody stands and listens to him as he reads the Bible. And that's kind of our rough, our rough paraphrase. And then we kind of go, well, if you have no context to it, then you're kind of like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, is this just something? Is, is Joshua just kind of free, free forming it here? Is he just kind of flying off and off the cuff and he's kind of doing this? Or is this something that God actually asked him to do? Well, and actually, truth be told, this is so beautiful, the way that God plays this whole thing out. And Joshua was actually fulfilling what Moses had already spoken about in Deuteronomy 27. So, so follow me in this for just a moment. I want you to recognize kind of how we set this thing up. We are now again in the eighth chapter. We'll, uh, God willing, be finishing that chapter of Joshua tonight. The book of Joshua takes the nation Israel out of the wilderness, through the Jordan and into the promised land. And there are many who like to play the idea that the promised land is heaven. I have a lot of problems with that, I'll be honest. I mean, it sounds lovely and it's wonderfully romantic, which, which tugs on me. I'm a sort of a romantic individual by, by nature. But, but if that's the case and all of these battles need to be fought and we need to take it by force and all that, I kind of get the idea it just doesn't sound like heaven to me. There's deception, there's lies. Uh, there's, you know, there's all kinds of backstabbing. There's deconsecration. There is, you know, people that are that are obviously against you. That just doesn't sound like heaven to me. But on the other side of it, I get this much: that in the book of Joshua, what we really see is what a spirit-filled life looks like. I mean, understand, if, if any of you are familiar, or if most of you are, or any of you, familiar with Scripture, we do know that Jesus makes these absurd promises about what it really means to walk with him. And it's something way beyond what we kind of get in the normal Christian experience. I mean, the normal Christian experience is kind of like, well, we, you know, we said yes to Jesus. We kind of know we, we ticked that box. We declared him as Lord and Savior. And now we're just kind of waiting to go to heaven, and Jesus is kind of like at a get-out-of-a-hell-free card. And that's just... That's just not what Jesus said. And so then what we do is we try to kind of live a life that we try to live the old life with this new Jesus thing. Like Jesus is a, a weird addition. We had kind of this you know, crack house. And now all of a sudden, somewhere on the side of that crack house is like this Tourette with stained glass windows and this big, beautiful thing. And it just doesn't look right. And we're trying to figure it out and we try to go out and we try to go get drunk again or try to go out and do some playing again or whatever it is. And it just, it just doesn't feel right. And all of a sudden that stuff that used to be fun isn't fun anymore. And, 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 and we just kind of go, what's, what's going on? And then we start reading scripture where we start seeing that Jesus said so much more than just believe in me and you won't go to hell. He said, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. I'll give you purpose. You're going to transform the world. I'm going to turn you into a revolutionary. Not someone that's going to strap a bomb on himself and blow up a bunch of people. But to be honest, someone who's going to strap the word of God into his heart and watch people delivered out of darkness. And the whole idea of the book of Joshua is a book of what would it be like if we stopped wandering around in the wilderness and we took God in faith for where he led us and he led us into a life that was, as Jesus said, more abundant. And many of, many of us read that scripture and we kind of wonder, is that just for pastors? Believe me, I've met too many pastors to say that 
not every pastor seizes a hold of that kind of thing. And that whole idea of, of joy that is unstealable and peace that surpasses our understanding and a hope that can't be quenched and love that goes so far beyond circumstance. And we read this stuff and it almost damns us because we kind of know that's what a Christian life's supposed to be like, but we're not kind of living it. We go, well, what's up with that? I mean, why the battles? You know, and, and we kind of feel like maybe we're the mutant, we're the freak, because obviously everyone else must have all that victory and we don't. What's up with that? Well, please understand, crossing the Jordan is the step into actually walking into a place that God had that was fruitful, a place of abundance, a place where God supplied through great faith. And in doing that now, we're no longer wandering and watching the old guy die. We're wandering now. We're actually following him, seeking him, trusting him like we can't see him, though we could see him much more in the wilderness. That pillar of cloud by day, that pillar of fire by night, we saw, we always knew God was there. Now we can't see him like that. There's no pillar anymore. There's no manna anymore. All of those things that we were so used to in the wilderness where God would seem like he could just touch him. Now it's not necessarily the case, but now there's something much more. Well, we're supposed to be world changers in this new place. Before that, we were like babies being nursed. Now we're like growing into our adolescence and we're supposed to actually have a purpose to change the world. And let me just say that there are battles that are going to be fought there. We saw with Jericho a battle much like the battle of the world. And when it tells us in 1 John chapters 2 and 5 that the world is made up, by the way, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and the victory over the world is our faith. And that's exactly what we see with Jericho. <laughs> we have to do something that seems so ridiculous and unscientific and so against our logic, and yet it's exactly the thing. And all we have to do is obey. And if we're willing to obey God, God's got this great victory plan for us. But when we crossed the Jordan, please hear me. When we crossed the Jordan, there was a pile of stones. We, 12 tribes, each took a stone and we took those 12 stones and we we stood them up upon each other. And we said, from this point on in Gilgal, anytime kids go, Dad, what's that pile of stones? We would say, listen, God took us over by faith. He did the work. We didn't. And we saw the magnificent faithfulness. This beautiful, magnificent faithfulness of God in that. So there was a pile of stones as a testimony. Another pile in the river, by the way, from where they took stones from the promised land and put them into the river. But interesting, shortly after the victory of our first one, that victory of the world, we saw another battle to take place. A place so small it only has two letters, and many pastors like to call it AI just to make it sound bigger. But it's just I. And I means heap of ruins. And there, because it seemed so small and it seemed so insignificant, we didn't take it seriously. We didn't go in full force. Like, you know what? Don't send in all of the soldiers. Just send in two, three thousand of them. That'll be enough. And they got whooped. But it wasn't, listen, it wasn't they got whooped because they were outnumbered. You see, in the first battle, God went before them into battle. But the second one, God actually stepped back and said, you know what? This camp is deconsecrated because one person named Achan or Achan took things that he was not supposed to. Hid them in his place. Now please understand, hidden sin still affects so many lives. And with that in mind, battle is lost and the people come and Joshua throws himself down and starts to cry. Our big, wonderful soldier, leader, sergeant. And God just says, get up. He's going, God, why did you do this to us? And God says, why did I do this to you? 
You know the difference between the battle, this one and the last one? The first one, I went in there for you. This one, you went in there instead. Because your house isn't, is, isn't in order. Your house isn't in order because there is somebody who is sinning and they're not turning it over. Now look at that sin now is past tense. The sin of them taking this stuff took place already. But because they haven't come clean with it, every day it's a fresh sin. Until they lay it down and truly confess it and lay it and say, you know what, I'm wrong. And it will never be about wondering about everybody else. It will only be about you at this point and laying your sin down. Until that happens, it's never really going to get dealt with. But it gets dealt with. It gets dealt with. And now we have another pile of stones. Because this Achan is covered in a pile of stones as a result of his unfaithfulness and the way that he brought defeat to Israel. And with that then, they go and they regather, reseek the Lord, and God says, now that we've consecrated the camp again, let's go and let's take this on. And in the second case, in the first case, we have this issue of the battle of the, of the world. In the second case, we have this issue of the battle of the flesh. And it is a horrible battle that you will face, as I will face, for the rest of our lives here on earth. The good news is, when I do get to heaven, I'll never have to battle that old stinking thing again. And I'll never have to wake up and have to go, no. I'll never have to say no to anything anymore. There will never be the word no in heaven other than no tears, you know, no pain, no death. But I won't have to say it. And just the same way with your own flesh, like mine, it desires to be served. And it is either serve yourself or serve others. And that becomes the issue of the flesh. How was the battle won? The battle is won by picking up your cross and following Jesus. See, understand, in the first case, we need Jesus as a Savior. And we knew that when we stood before him and stood at Jericho. But when we actually look at the second case, we need him as our Lord. And he really is. And I challenge you, by the way, because Jesus is so soft-souled in, in contemporary Christianity for the whole, that it's like all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. You know, all you have to do is make him your Savior. And that sounds so easy. But Jesus never says in Scripture, because you didn't declare me Savior, I'm not letting you into heaven. What he says is, many will call me Lord, Lord, and still not enter in because they still didn't do what I said. How could I be their Lord if they're not willing to follow me? The Lord is issue. So, so here we on this. In the second case, there's that battle of the flesh. And with that battle of the flesh, finally... He says, listen, I don't want you to take a few men. I want you to take all of your men, the entire army, and I want you to go and blitz it. I want you to go and just go after this thing and ambush it. Go after it with all of your force. And unless you go after it with all of your force, I'll be honest, you're going to be tempted to go back. And I never believe a person that's like, oh, I'll never do that again. Why won't you ever do that again? Well, because I just know I won't. I don't buy that. Either we do whatever we can not to go back to the sins we're familiar with, or we are fooling ourselves to think, and what we're saying is, don't worry, I'll just put a small watch on this. And, and I've, we've just saw too many times that where we've had to scrape someone back out of the gutter because they were convinced they were strong enough not to, not to do this themselves. But for the grace of God, there'd be any of us. So please hear me in this. Now we have these two different piles of stones. And when they take down Ai, there's another pile of stones there with the king of Ai as well. And all of a sudden, we have these piles of stones. On one side, we have this pile of stones in the river and one pile of stones on the outside of the river. And we look and we say, this is the faithfulness, the magnificent faithfulness of God. Look at how beautiful that is. 
God did this. He parted the sea, man, and we walked right through it. Look at how faithful God is. And then we have another pile of stones where we see a Han's body where it laid. And we see a pile of stones at Ai. And what do we say at that? We say, well, let me tell you. On one side, we see this magnificent, you know, faithfulness of God. And we see the total destructive faithlessness of man on the other side. And see, on one case, there's an encouragement. And on the other case, there's a warning. You know what's interesting? Almost every question someone's going to come at you about God can be answered with one of those two things. They'll say, well, what about the Holocaust? And I'll say, man's wickedly sinful. That's why he needs a savior. How did God birth the nation Israel from the Holocaust? Because God is magnificently faithful. Well, what about those sick, twisted priests in Ireland? Because man is wicked, desperately wicked, and he needs a savior. But they were representing God. Yes, you know what's strange is some of those people gave their life to Christ even in the midst of all of that because God is still wonderfully and marvelously faithful. And people say, well, what about this thing? And you know, it's like, isn't it funny people ask us to defend things we weren't at? You know, I mean, imagine if someone goes in, like as an American born, or at least born in America, imagine you come to me and you're like, hi, I'm English. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, what about the Inquisitions? Or, you know, well, what about, you know, and you'd be like, what are you talking about? Well, what about that time when you, you know, when Thomas Mann burned Wycliffe alive and all this stuff because he tried to translate the Bible into English? What about that? And you'd be like, I don't know. I wasn't alive. I didn't, do, I didn't like the torch. You're like, you, you'd look at me like I was an idiot because you were like, I don't have anything to do with that. I'm just English. I was born here. And what's interesting is, is it's funny how people try to get us to defend things we weren't at. And it's like, oh, I don't have to defend it because it isn't God. I don't have to defend God. God's like a lion. All I have to do is step out of his way. He'll take care of himself. I just need to let him. It's like, you know, the question is, is like, if, with all of that horrible stuff out there, how come people are still saying yes to God? Because he's still faithful. And because man needs a savior. And so interesting, because as I started looking back, and that will take us right to our text, as I look through Scripture up to this point, when we're only in the sixth book, I get the idea that these piles of stones, by the way, are consistent through all of, all of our texts so far. If any of you are familiar with the man Jacob, who ultimately gets a name change to, who can tell me? To Israel. We find that he has two piles of stones that he has set up, by the way. One of them, by the way, is at a place called Bethel, which means house of God. This was the place, by the way, where Jacob laid down his head and he saw angels ascending and descending upon this, probably like an escalator as we might see it today. You know, kind of, and, and he sees this thing and he realizes, he goes, oh my goodness, this is the house, this is the gate of God right here. In that particular place, he sets up a stone and he says, this is a monument. Strange, that is actually the case for one of those two stones. That's 20, Genesis 28, 22. But on the other side of it, he has this, well, this father-in-law who's really just a, a grifter. You know, the kind of guy that when someone, when he shakes your hand, you check to make sure your watch is still there when it's done? That's this guy, Laban. Laban, by the way, means whitey. And Laban comes over and what happens with him is that the guy rips him off about his about his bride price and all of these other things. And finally they meet and they're like, you know what, from this point on, this is the line. You don't come past it on this side. I won't go past it on that side. Here's the line. And they set up a stone there, by the way. And they call the place, by the way, by the way, Sehaduta means, in essence, a witness, a heap of witness. And there's a pile of stones. And if you were to ask Jacob, tell me about the two different kinds of stones, he could say, let me tell you the magnificent faithfulness of God. Even when I was a total yutz, God still showed me how he ascends and descends and sends his messengers. 
And he met me at my loneliest place. But he says, let me show you another. This is the one where we can see the destructive, you know, the destructive faithlessness of man. And thus we needed to draw a line and say, you can't get past it and I won't either. That's his too. And then I look at the high priest in Exodus, Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, I don't know if you're familiar with the dress of the high priest, but it's beautiful. And he's got these magnificent stones. He's got 12 on his breastplate. And then he's got two of them that sit on his shoulders. The, the ones that sit on his shoulders, by the way, are onyx. And they have the name six tribes on each. Interesting. On these two pieces right here, there's six tribes here and there's six tribes here. And then and there are these black stones. And then over here, there are these beautiful, magnificent stones, 12 of them here, each one with each of a tribe on it. And as this man ultimately will represent Jesus Christ, I get it. Because the responsibility of a priest is to take the love of God to man and the sin of man to God. And that's exactly what he looks like. From God's perspective, he sees the top down. He sees the black on the shoulders. But from man's perspective, as he's looking to seek God, he sees the magnificent jewel that they are in God's eyes. And it tells us that. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a jewel, so beautiful that the man who saw it sold everything that he had to buy the field the jewel was in so he could have it. And you understand, that jewel is you. I mean, you were so precious, so valuable, that, the, that only the richest person in the universe could afford you, and it cost them everything. That's the whole point. That's the story of the gospel. So please hear me in this. I get this set of two stones again. I get the stones where on one side I see this, you know, the, if you will, the magnificent faithfulness of God upon the, upon the breast of the high priest. And then I also see the destructive faithlessness of man upon the shoulders of the priest. And then as I go from that, by the way, I recognize that even with Moses, he did the same thing as an altar was built and he receives the law. And then with Israel... We see with Joshua the pillars again. Ultimately, I'll see that with Jesus. As I'll see the stone that is rolled away, and yet we read that the stone that the builders rejected had become the capstone. It will be a testimony either way. So please hear me in this. I get to this text, and on the way right before this, Moses has this last talk with Israel before he dies and hands the, the baton over to Joshua. Now, if you're in your Bibles, do this really quick. Go to the left. The book right before this is Deuteronomy to chapter 27. I love it. In Deuteronomy 27, starting in verse 1, it says this. Look at you guys, Bible students. It's awesome. Now, Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God has given you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones, whitewash them with lime, and you shall write on them all the words of this law when you've crossed over, that you may enter the land in which the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore, it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Chebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today. Notice it says on Mount Ebal you'll set up these stones. These stones. What, what's on these stones? The law. 
The laws, and it isn't like, understand, it isn't like it's going to take them forever because they're not carving it. They're covering it in lime so they can write upon it. They can etch into it. So it's just like writing in the sense of that's much quicker. And with that, then he's saying, you're going to take these stones, you're going to cover them in lime, then you're going to etch on them all the words of the law. And you're going to go to this one mountain called not Ebal and not Hebal. What you're going to do there is you're going to take these stones and put them on that mountain. Are you with me so far? So the law is going to sit on top of that mountain. Which would lead us to remind us, by the way, of all the way back in Exodus 19.20, when, of course, Moses went up and received the law in the first place. And he says this, then. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. Now, wait a minute. On Mount Obal you shall set up these stones on which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them, but you shall build them with whole stones, the altar of the Lord your God, to offer burnt offerings on it, to the Lord your God. <clears throat> you shall offer peace offerings and you shall eat it there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of the law. Now, did you get that? Now, what he's going to tell us in the remainder of that chapter all the way through from, to Deuteronomy 30 is this. There's a second mountain and that mountain is called Mount Gerizim. And what's going to happen is I have this challenge for you. First of all, you're going to write a copy of the law and you're going to put it on one of these two mountains, either Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim. Which one? Excellent. Mount Ebal. Right on. You're on Mount Ebal. At the base of Mount Ebal, you're going to build something else. What are you going to build there? An altar. Right? An altar at the bottom. And it says, now look at the text. You're going to offer two different kinds of offerings. What offerings are going to be offered there? Burnt and peace. Now, there are five basic offerings that the Jewish people would offer, but those two are really unique in sense. They're actually kind of almost opposite. The burnt offering, what you do is you take the entire animal that's sacrificed and you burn the entirety of it. You don't get to keep any of it. You can't make shoes with part of it. You can't eat any of it. The whole thing is burnt. And the idea of it is total consecration. Every bit of it's his. Does that make sense? That's the idea that well, when it sells, by the way, and those of you familiar with Romans 12, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice the idea is we are not offering God part of our time or part of our heart or part of our anything. We offer God everything because to do that, we have to throw ourselves. That's the idea of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. But I've heard it said the problem with being a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's why you have to keep offering ourselves as a living offering. Okay, so there's that. So the burnt offering, everything gets burnt. Now, on the other side of it, the peace offering, basically what you do is when you, when you actually sacrifice the animal, you take the parts that only a Scot would eat and you burn those. So like the guts, innards, that stuff, you know, it's either going to be sausage in Edinburgh or it's going to be burnt. And this is the case. Sorry, sir. Sorry, Marcia. And so we take it in and all of that gets burnt. And, all, and then you take like the steaks and all of that stuff. And you grill it up and you feed people with it. So on one side, this is totally sacrificed, the burnt offering. On the other side, you basically have a barbecue with God and, and those people that you are now at peace with. Traditionally, it would be the case where two people were in an argument with each other. So two people were kind of in an argument. Now they've made peace. They go public with it by saying, you know what? We're going to feed everybody in your household and mine just to celebrate this union. There's kind of the idea. So understand, he says, so on the bottom of this mountain, now on which mountain, by the way, is the altar built? Is it Ebal or Gerizim? Ebal, beautiful. So it's the same mountain that has the law. Don't you find that interesting? That the same place where the law is, that's where the altar has to be. Now, the law is put up on top, but the altar is put down. And as the altar is on ground floor, so that every person, nobody climbs to the altar, God descends. That's the difference between, by the way, every other religion and Jesus. 
Because Jesus, God, comes down. Every other thing, man tries to go up. So, down at the bottom, and we offer this. The total surrender, that's going to be Jesus, by the way. And then the peace that we get between ourselves as God creates this family. So there's that sacrifice. Are you following me? And then he says, now here's the deal. This is what I want you to do. When you crawl across, again, I remind you, Deuteronomy 27, they haven't crossed the land yet because Moses hasn't died and given it over to Joshua. So Moses is saying to a group of people that are going to go over, but he himself will not. And he says, listen, guys, here's the deal. Loose paraphrase, but again, don't just believe me. Deuteronomy 27 to 30. So here's the deal. Uh, what I want you guys to do is when you cross over, you're going to go and you're going to find yourself between two mountains. On one mountain, you're going to say, that's Mount Ebal, and the other one's Mount Gerizim. And then in between is a place called Shechem, or Shechem, you might be familiar with, Deuteronomy 34, I mean, sorry, uh, at Je- Genesis 34, for instance. Now, interesting, because what will happen is this. Hear me. You're going to take the 12 tribes and you're going to split them in half. You're going to put the ark in the middle in that area of Shechem, and then you're going to put the people on the two sides of the mountains. And as you put them there, this is what's going to happen. Priests are going to declare, and they're going to say, if you don't obey God, here are the curses that will happen to you, and you do that on Mount Ebal. So we'll say, all right, here's the deal. And some of you have come from more of a sort of a, kind of a really God wants to just give you everything kind of church versus you need to obey him first. Well, then understand, we like the second half of it. We like the Mount Gerizim part. We don't like this part. God says, look, if you don't obey me, I'll take away the rain because I'm the one who brings it. I'll take away the protection because I'm the one who protects you. In other words, what God's doing is he's not just shoving stuff at you. What he's doing is he's just removing his loving hand from you enough for you to see that life is really hell without him. So what happens, he says, listen, and, and understand, just like any groom that provides, he gives his provision, his protection, his pleasure, his presence, and that's what we expect from God. And God says, that's what I'll give you if you just follow me. If you really surrender to me, I will give you my provision. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get the Bentley, but what that does mean is God will give you what you need. And then with it, he'll give you his protection, and he'll give you his pleasure. I love that. And he'll even give you purpose. And he'll give you his presence. He goes, but you don't want to obey me? And this is what he says. Look at if you don't obey me, you'll be cursed in the field. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed at home. You'll be cursed when you rise. You'll be cursed when you sit down. In other words, life's going to get miserable everywhere you go. You know why? Because God does not want you to enjoy life without him. So on this side of it, it's like, look, you don't want to obey. This is what happens. You'll be driven to everywhere. Your whole life will be scattered. But... It's all, please, please hear me. It's all totally avoidable. All you have to do is follow me. You're my people. I've adopted you. You need to follow me. God speaking, not me. So on this side, hey, look, if you're willing to follow me, I will bless you. I'll bless you in the field. I'll bless you in the city. I'll bless you when you get up. I'll bless you when you go to sleep. I'll bless you when you go to McDonald's. I will bless you when you're trying to catch a train. I'll bless you when you don't catch the train, but something cooler happens. I'll bless you when you catch a bus. I'll bless you when you catch the wrong bus. I'll bless you when you wind up someplace you didn't think you would be. I will bless you when you just go, where in the world am I? And then God does something really cool. He goes, I, cause God loves to do that, but he doesn't want to bless your mess. What he wants to bless is your surrender. So hear me. Here's the thing. He goes, so you have a date with me. Here's the date with me. When you guys do cross over, you're going to stand there and you're going to part six tribes on this mountain, six tribes over here. The ark's going to be in between. And then you guys have to make a choice. He goes, I just want to make really clear 
before all of this, as you're now in the promised land, as you now can live a spirit-filled life, as you now can follow me and have this deep intimacy with me, if that's going to be the case, well then, what side are you going to pick? Interesting, because, you know, the book of Joshua ends kind of with that same idea. So understand, what we see here is exactly that. But then something hit me as I started to look at this. Because I realized that the whole book of Joshua is about piles of rocks. I mean, there's this pile of rocks, right, that says this is God's faithfulness there in Gilgal that we took from the Jordan. And then there's a pile of rocks on top of Achan that says this is, of course, the destructive faithlessness of man. And there's a pile over I, to be honest, and it's kind of both. But it's like this is still how God remained faithful in all of that. So wait a minute, these two people are standing in front of mountains. Well, then I had to realize, well, what are mountains? They're just really big piles of rocks. And I realized these are God's testimony. He goes, look at the same thing happens here now in this place. The last mention in the book of Joshua of the ark, by the way, is right here. And the ark comes, it sits in the middle, and the priest starts saying, which, place, which way do you, and you know what, don't, don't you know this? I mean, don't you know, it isn't like, hey, I've obeyed God, so he has to give me stuff. But the idea is, I'm following God. I expect God to do amazing things in my life. I do, by the way. And it isn't because, well, I can't say it isn't because I'm special, because I am special. So are you. I'm one of God's favorites. So are you, if you're his. And the bottom line is God loves to bless us. And I expect to live that kind of life. I mean, I expect to go to places and just expect God to do something cool there. And people go, that's just being optimistic. I'm like, actually, that's just walking with... I mean, do you know who my dad is? Have you met my dad? Because my dad's amazing. I mean, did you see the sunset that he paints? And he did that for me. He didn't have to give me eyesight, but he gave me eyesight and then he painted. And, he, and then he invented color. Think that through. He didn't have to give me ears, but he did. And he invented song. He didn't have to give me skin, but he did. And he invented the touch of a friend and the hand to hold and the warmth of a person. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to give us taste buds, but he did. Last night, we were at a restaurant in New York called Yak and Yeti, Nepalese food. Oh, my goodness. I actually thanked the Lord again for taste buds. You know, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but forgive me, forgive this digression. But you ever like ask, you ever see you're like, Lord, bless this food. What does that mean? I mean, bless means make happy, make my food happy. I get it. I mean, like bless the food of our bodies. Like I get the idea. Don't let it do something really horrible to me. Some of the food, that's a miracle, by the way, that we choose to eat as guys. But, but I realize there are sometimes when I'm just like, God, I just want to thank you because you gave me taste buds. I'm going to really enjoy this. And we did. We really, really enjoyed it. And here's the point of all that. That's my dad who invented all that stuff. He invented all of that. And he woke me up this morning knowing that I would say goodbye to one of the girls I love the absolute most. But she's, she's going to Bible college. I can't complain for that. And it's like, but in all of that, the beauty of how he would give me time with him. And just like, let's go for a walk right now. I'm like, oh, yes, please. Okay, sure, please. And just to be able to get that time and to sit for a moment, even just before this, to sit at Regent's Park for just a moment and hear him speak to my heart and say, hey, I still love you. You're still mine. I just love to hear that. And here they are now, and they're standing. And the question is, well, what kind of life do you want to live? 
I mean, do you want to live the kind of life where you really enjoy a God who loves to bless you? Or do you want to find your life kind of living the life, kind of bearing his surname, but really living so opposite of him that you're kind of fighting all of the things he wants to do? And, if you, and those of you who are parents, you kind of know how this is. Like you have a great plan for someone and your kids want to do something else. They want to be kind of nutters for the moment. And then it kind of creates tension in the house and all that stuff. And then you're like, you have no idea the blessings I have planned for this day. And then you finally get there and they're like, oh my goodness, if I had just known this, I would have been nicer all morning. And you're like, why don't you just trust me? You know, and I just see the Lord every time that those kind of things happen where I'm like, oh Lord, if I just trusted you. So follow me on this text for a moment, and it should make a lot more sense. Joshua built an altar because God told him to. He built it, by the way, at the bottom of which of the mountains? Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim? Mount Ebal. Remember, the place, interesting, don't you find it interesting? The sacrifice takes place at the one where the law is, the one where the curse is. Because the bottom line is, without that sacrifice, well, then the law isn't paid for. The curse remains. Moses, it just isn't Moses, the servant of the Lord, had said so. And he told us, by the way, there was one rule about this altar. This one's not going to be fancy. Don't do anything with it. Don't take an iron tool to it. In other words, listen, listen, listen. God's saying, look, at the moment you try to offer me your works, it's, I'm not interested. What I want is your surrender. I want to work through you. I don't want you to work for me. And that's a very different thing. Because we get so exhausted if we think we need to work for God versus we get to be with him. And he does it through us. Imagine if when a woman had gotten pregnant, she feels like it's her job to consciously make the baby. You'd think, well, that's kind of crazy. It's happening as a miracle inside of you, whether you know it or not. What the Lord rots inside of us, beloved, it's his miracle. And when he does things to to touch other people's lives through us, we can't give ourselves credit just as much as nobody worships the paintbrush for which Mona Lisa came. We don't know where it is anymore. Although I'm sure if you go to certain places, they'd probably try to sell you something and say it was. And all we are is we get to be the tool and he's the craftsman. And I love that because then the pressure is off. All I have to do is be surrendered to his hand. So they're in the presence of Israel. The children of Israel, he wrote the stones, uh, a copy of the law. And it says in then, verse 33, Then all Israel, with the elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of, of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as him who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim. The other half were in front of Mount Ebal, by the way. <clears throat> and, but this is kind of how the place In Mount Ebal, it will be Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, in the area of Gerizim to the north, it will be Simeon, Levi, uh, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, for, for what that's worth. And then it says, listen, that half of them were one, half of the others, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, they read the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word that Moses had commanded, which Joshua didn't read from before the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who, was living, who were living among them. Now, interesting, by the way, to conclude this, by the way, the, there is a text, by the way, in Galatians that takes us to two other mountains. And he compares this in a similar manner. Uh, for what it's worth, um, Jesus himself will actually find himself in this very spot. And that's important to note. See, this area, by the way, that we're looking at here is an area that will be ultimately called Samaria. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, it tells us, by the way, that 
there are two mountains that everything is kind of based on in religion. And one is Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments came, and the other is Calvary, where Jesus died. And in one case, it's like, do this and I will. And in this case, I did it because I love you. And the beautiful part is one initiates and one responds. Here you initiate, you want God to respond. Here God did all the work and he wants you to respond. And my question tonight is, have you responded? Have you said yes to this gift of Jesus? Have you said yes when he says, listen, I paid the price on this hill. I died on this hill to pay your price because what God did is he came down to the bottom of the mountain ultimately to pay the price by giving total sacrifice like that burnt offering and then offering us peace through that so that we could fellowship with him. It's amazing that he set us up with that, even here in Joshua. Now, what about you? As you kind of stand here in the middle of that. Now listen, this, this area, when Israel divides, and some of you may not be familiar with this, but after David, he has a son, King David, he has a son named Solomon, and Solomon's a bit of a yutz. Brilliant in one way and stupid in another. You ever meet people like this? They're so smart, they're like stupid smart. You know, well, that's 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 Solomon for the wisest man that ever lived. He sure made some poor choices. I mean, to have a thousand women in the household and then no disrespect, ladies, but that's a that's a thousand mother-in-laws. That's a thousand. That's a thousand girls fighting over. I mean, even seven doesn't make sense. And that's one of one a day of the week. But anyways, but with all of that, his house, his house is divided. His heart is divided. And because of that, uh, ultimately, what God does is he divides the kingdom after him. Solomon's son, just to make things less complicated, Rehoboam, um, will actually get the tribes of the south, which, by the way, will be Benjamin and Judah and the renegade Levites. The north will be Solomon's commander. His name is Jeroboam. Let's just call him Jerry to make it easier. Jerry gets the ten tribes of the north, and he takes for his capital Shechem, this area here. Because Jerusalem's in the south, where all of the sacrifices are made, a new place has to be given for the ten tribes of the north, because he knows if they go down to Jerusalem, they'll just they'll jump ship. So he guess which place he picks? Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim then becomes the place where all of those ten northern tribes would sacrifice. It will take then, actually, six more kings where Omri, the father of King Ahab, if you're familiar with him, he will move that capital now to a place called Samaria. And then the whole region becomes Samaria. Now, forgive me for this history, but I'm almost done. But in John chapter 4, Jesus, by the way, we read, had to go through Samaria. And he stops at a well in a place called Sichar. Sichar is the contemporary word for Sechem or Shechem. Jesus went to the same place that Joshua stood right here. And it was there at the well that he meets a woman and introduces her to the Savior himself. Interesting, it would be right here. She chooses the hill of blessing through obedience. Now hear me. This isn't about just saying, Jesus, come and just... Forgive me. And that's a definitely a great place to start. But it is pledging allegiance. And that's what these people did. I pledge allegiance to follow you. And I may lose friends for that. But I'm going to follow you. I may become less popular at the beginning. But I'm going to choose to follow you. I may not think that I'm going to get everything I want right now. But I'm going to choose to follow you. Because I know you know what's right. You know what's best for me. And if I follow you, I know that I will lack nothing of what I need. And I will have that abundant life you spoke about. The joy unquenchable. That peace that surpasses understanding. The love for people that I would have hated otherwise. 
But for that to happen, He's got to be your Lord, not just your Savior. We hand over the throne and we say, this is yours now. Sit here. Take the throne of my life. So as we go to prayer now, let me ask you, is there anything right now you go, but, when you hear that, I'd like to make Jesus Lord, but there's this stronghold in my life. And I'm not talking about something you feel a victim to. I'm talking about that thing where you're like, I just don't want to give it up. I don't want to give up clubbing. I don't want to give up sleeping around. I don't want to give up getting wasted. I don't want to give up what? What do you think you're holding on to that God can't make better? That God couldn't give you better than what you're holding on to? Because tonight here in this room, I think the Lord wants to do a miracle in our hearts. And I think he wants to revolutionize us. Because if the revolution doesn't start inside, how are we ever going to become the revolutionaries he intends us to be? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this beautiful text. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that throughout Scripture we see these hills. We see this hill of our own performance and we see this hill of our surrender. We see this hill of your faithfulness and we see this hill of our faithlessness. The hill of our faithlessness shows us our own destruction, but on the other side of it, the hill of your faithfulness shows us your gift to us. And Lord, I recognize that to a drowning man, he wouldn't be arguing over the color of his life ring. He'd just be happy that there is rescue. And tonight here in this room, Lord, I just pray that if there be any of us who aren't sure whether or are sure that we haven't said yes to that offer for you to be our Lord and Savior and to choose to follow you, that tonight would be the night we make that choice. But for every one of us, Lord, that as you make clear in our lives these victories over these battles, this battle over the world to not make ourselves the thing, but to make you the thing and to trust you, Lord, I recognize that's a battle we will fight and the world will constantly trying to make us people that are, have more faith in ourselves and in essence deny you to do so. Give us that victory, Lord, to trust you even when it doesn't make sense that we can trust you. And the same thing in regards to our flesh, Lord, where the world will tell us, Lord, and the enemy will tell us, man, just serve yourself and serve yourself. You're entitled and you need to, but instead, Lord, we choose to follow you and make you Lord. And in doing so, Lord, we stand in this valley of decision. And in the valley of decision, we recognize on one side is this is the law that stands to curse us. But at the bottom is an altar where blood is shed to remind us that you would pay our price. But on the other mount, the mount of obedience is a place where we can celebrate you because, Lord, you are our Lord and not just our payment. And so tonight here in this room, we choose to say yes. Jesus, recognizing you died on the cross for our sins personally because we were the jewel that you so hungered for. And as you died on that cross, Lord, we confess you as our Savior. But as you, just like Scripture promised, were buried and then rose again on the third day, we confess you as our Lord. We choose to follow you now. We recognize obedience is not an easy thing. We need your Holy Spirit to infest us in such a way that we would say yes. Yes. And it would be a life of yes to you, which may mean a life of no to others. But it will be a life of yes to you and that we will not regret when we stand before eternity. So tonight here in this room, we declare you, Jesus, as our Savior and as our Lord. And we choose to follow you, Lord. Make your will clear in our lives and bless it. Give us that abundant life, Lord, that we thought was only a dream or was just, though it sounds like a great idea or a theory, it's just we couldn't even see how it could become our lives. Tonight, make it clear how you, how you will make that real. 
as we commit ourselves to you, Jesus, in your name. And if that is your prayer with me tonight, I ask you to give a confident, resounding Amen. So, Lord, now we just pray that as we have said this yes to you, that you would lead us now. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a home and fellowship. Lord, give us a sweetness in prayer and intimacy. And move us forward in you as we follow you now. In Jesus, in your name. Amen.